So, Rebecca, we have a number of different questions from the listeners for you to answer. What do you say? We read the questions and you can answer them. What do you say, Rebecca? I'm really ready. But just so everyone knows, I'm having to stay perfectly still and that's hard for me. Yeah. So we're recording remotely and that means that I have to coach Rebecca on how to uh, deal with microphones and background noise and it's a huge hardship. Soon we'll be completely inoculated and Rebecca can come back to my office and I can set up the microphones and I can do all the sound treatments and all of our hardships will be over. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? Hey, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a talk art somatic therapist in South Seattle. So this first question is from Facebook. We have a number. I asked people on Facebook, hey, you know, what questions do you have for Rebecca? Danny says, I'd be interested in what an art therapy session looks like and what therapeutic techniques as a therapist uses to help clients with their issues. What distinguishes art therapy from an art class? What do you say to that, Mm. Rebecca? So uh, in an art class, you're usually all learning to do the same thing. So the teacher shows an example, and you all work to your best to to do it a version of that example. Uh, In an art therapy, it can be everything from open studio to you come in and do whatever you want with the materials, or I work a little bit more directive-based. So I'll suggest something, but I know the client may interpret that in any kind of way, and also... I know that there's art skills are going to be uh, that we're we're not working on perfection. We're working on the process. So we're not trying to look advanced. We might look really regressed and that's okay. Right. So in art class, you might be trying to perfect or improve on your skills with using uh, watercolors or something. But in art therapy, it's about processing emotion, trauma, exploration of who you are, not necessarily about trying to become better at the craft of art. Is that right? Yeah. Although I will say people's, the craft inherently gets better. And that's amazing to watch over time. Someone that drew a stick figure at the very beginning by the end is there. It's just amazing. The level of technique that they're unconsciously discovering in themselves completely naturally without any, Uh, coaching from me they're just they're finding their own style and that's really great uh show who is a a big big member (laughs) an important (laughs) member of the facebook fan page she says are there art therapy approaches that someone might be able to do independently at home what do you say to that so there's so many books. I, I wrote a book on it, um, Square the Circle. If you go on Amazon or any book site, there are tons of art therapy, creative journaling options. Um, and then there's also The Artist's Way, which is really about writing to tap into your creativity. Uh, so there, And also, if you just look on Pinterest or... Um, even on Twitter, <laughs> there's, there's art therapy direct. Those are called directives. So there are tons of suggestions out there if you just want to test something out. I mean, the difference is the act of being witnessed and is very different than 
doing it at home alone. But I, you know, creativity is our life force and it's out there for all of us to explore if you want to use it. Yeah. I, I started writing music when I was in high school and I really can't imagine emotionally where I'd be without it. It, it is, um, as you know, Rebecca with art, it expresses emotions that I can't express in any other way. I can't even really even describe the emotions sometimes in the songs that I write and, and it's not even in the words, it's in the chords and the feeling and, and the way it feels to, to perform it just in my room by myself, which is 99% of what music means to me. <laughs> um, and that's always meant to me. Um, so plug your two books again. Tell us about your two uh, books. So I've got our, uh, Square the Circle, Art Therapy Workbook. And then there is also Vicarious Trauma Illustrated, which is um, looking at exploring workplace trauma. But at this point, after a year in COVID, it would work for anybody. But there's five different sets of directives. One is psychoanalytic, Jungian, feminist, narrative, and mindfulness. Um, and, and they're great. Either you can use them in supervision, um, nurses, any, any healthcare provider out there, any first responder, please buy the book and work your way through it. Um, there's tons of great, simple ways that creativity can help us right now because we're all, as I described to one client today, we are all shattered mirrors trying to move through the world and it's not going very well. Yeah, Square the Circle, we did an episode on that years and years ago. How long ago would it have been? It was in your base it was in your basement apartment and I had bangs. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> ten years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. And we even did a, like a special little commercial for it. Like we recorded like a five minute thing for it. And it is like a I mean, for the layperson, it's sort of like a coloring book and each page is a different thing that you can do that you kind of lay out and it's really easy to follow along with. It's probably fun and therapeutic in a lot of ways. Tracy says, what are some causes of creativity block and some ways to deal with it? For instance, I was a music major that had a breakdown in college and couldn't write a whole and couldn't play a whole note without freaking out that I was doing it wrong I think one reason for that was a teacher that triggered several issues stemming from emotionally and verbally abusive parents that came to a head in college. I'm also a writer with a number of published articles, but I've been writing less and less over the past few years, although I want to. My job is stressful and takes a lot of space in my head, so that's likely a reason. My creativity lately seems dead in general. Uh What would you say to that, Rebecca? Uh, So I think of creativity like a plant. And we need to feed our plants, and sometimes they need a big dose of fertilizer. So I take some kind of creative class at least once a year, if not multiple classes. Um, I would highly recommend taking a class. So uh, have you done any master classes? This is kind of a plug for a product, but many, many people that you respect who are the top of their game master class as a class by them and I took Margaret Atwood's master class on writing and by episode four I was so blown away that I like wrote for a month because her ideas are so great so I would say get inspired by someone that inspires you and there's so many ways to do that right now 
Um, or also if one medium isn't working, pick up another one. Yeah. Um, there's been times where I have collaged huge collages and then that goes dead for me. And then I start watercolor painting and then I start felting and, you know, it means my basement is a, is a nightmare and my wife is very angry at me, but I am hitting creativity from a bunch of different sources. Or we were talking about what have you done in COVID that you couldn't do before. And I just took a dance class on Saturday. We were all masked. But I was like, I, I was like on afterwards. Like people were strangers were stopping me and talking to me just about stuff. And I could tell like I'd had a huge shift in that dance class. Um, yeah, creativity for everyone is a need. And for some, they're in tune with that for others or not. And so you're saying to Tracy, uh, well, have you ever experienced creative block? All right. Have I experienced creative block? Sure. And it's, it's devastating. I mean, it feels like you've lost a lover or you're, you're losing connection to your love, your life force. And then this culture examples of people who appear to never lose it are everywhere. I mean, I think of Questlove, who appears to be able to create in every medium constantly every day. Or someone like Lori Anderson, who's in her 80s and is writing her 10th experimental one-woman show. Um, so it can feel overwhelming, but it's a completely natural part of the process. Uh, all creatures, all plants go fallow for a while. They can't produce year-round, that would be impossible. Um, and so I, you know, sometimes there's just downtimes. And then that's when um, being in a group or just doing something like morning pages, which comes from the artist's way, where you just write for an allotted amount of time and it's free writing. And even if you're just writing, I'm doing nothing, I'm doing nothing, I'm doing nothing, eventually the light bulb's going to turn on. But you're just working a muscle, and eventually that muscle is going to click in with intention and it'll, it'll flow again. Yeah. I think for me, a big part of it is recognizing that, like you say, sometimes it's just uh, a, a valley in one's creative process. Cause I, I've been writing since high school and there have been times where I'm writing a song every day and I'm, and they're good songs. They're not terrible songs. And then there are other times when I don't write a song in like two years or something. And, and so I think just recognizing that that happens, but I think another part of it is for me, um, is perfectionism getting in the way rather than what I did for originally, or at least I think I did originally was I didn't care if it sounded good. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to do it. It just was fun to do. And it was fun to write and record and listen back to it and say, huh, that's interesting. I just wrote a song and recorded it. And what it expressed and sort of exploring different avenues of, of musical uh, theory or areas and, and, and never really caring, like, if it sounded any good. I mean, I, I, <laughs> in the first number of years, I think I'd I just figured none of it sounded good anyway, so why try to make it sound good? Who cares? But at a certain point, you're like, 
maybe with some success, you feel like, oh, well, now I have to actually do something that is commercially viable or that is popular to the masses. And I think that can really get in the way of creativity, not for everyone, uh, but but I think for me. Another thing is working with other people. When I, uh, I for, for a lot of my life, I've written alone and recorded alone. You know, I've learned how to play all the instruments, drums and piano, and and I would just record it on my own because I just didn't want to deal with other people. <laughs> you know, just like uh, it's kind of a hassle to schedule everyone, and maybe everyone's wishes aren't the same, and and sometimes they don't play it like the way you're hoping they would. But it, I think the most creative parts of my musical life have been I when I was working with others when you know the the last band I was in, Bread Knife Incident, we, it was a uh, drummer, bassist, and me, and I played guitar and sang, and I wrote the music, but they wrote their parts. I would bring in a song, and I would say, it's, you know, it's kind of, the drums should be something kind of like this, and the bass should be something kind of like this, but I, it was real uh, rudimentary direction, and often it would just go in a completely different direction, and the amount of music that I wrote in the span of a few years was was a lot and I and I'm proud of it and I would not have done that if I you know because because then I I could write a song I could get inspired I'd write a little little sort of uh, melody and a little guitar riff or something and I knew that okay in a couple days we're going to have band practice and I'll bring it into the band and, and we can work on this whereas today when I write a little thing I'm like well what am I do I really want to develop this you know it 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 doesn't motivate me, and when I'm with other people, I'm I'm much more motivated. So I I don't know. You know Umberto actually is writing a novel, and one oh. of the ways that got him off the uh, I don't know you know writer's block uh, thing was to commit to his brother. Him and his brother made a commitment that they were gonna. Uh, there's some sort of bet that they made. You know, I'm gonna write 100 pages and a month or else <laughs> something horrible is going to happen. And, and that really got him moving, you know, like, uh, isn't there some month in the year where you're supposed to write? Uh, Mo- November is national novel writing month. Right. And there's a whole program that you can get involved. Right. And it's arbitrary. Cause it's like, well, any month you could just tell yourself it's, you know, I'm going to write, but there's something about doing it collectively. We're collective creatures. And you know, we like to think of ourselves, maybe even particularly when it's creating something, particularly something like writing, that we're supposed to be like Stephen King and walk into our office and write and write and write. But I think for most of us, it's a social thing. It's something that we do like everything else we do. We do it in connection and in relation to other people, even as we're doing it. So I, I think that that can, that can sometimes help. And it can make it more fun, right? Like, uh, instead of, you know, me just sitting in my office going like, I hate this song that I've written. It sounds like all the other songs I've written. This is stupid. No one's going to want to hear it. And then getting with other people and it's just like, hey, that's cool. You know, like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, and just joking around and just making it more light. And, and I, I think that could help, too. Yeah. And there's also meetup groups are awesome. I have a client who's just tried tons. Like, you know, what's the meetup collage group like? Like, just pop in see what's going on or um you brought it up but i just want to acknowledge the consumerism white supremacy aspect of this that creativity is 
at its core a not-for-profit group experience. Right. You know, when we were in Sebastopol, there is a jam session that happens at the city square every Saturday night. And it is a thing to behold. There is a tuba there. (laughs) Um, People are dancing and people just bring their drums and play and play and play. And there is no judgment there. And those kinds of circles don't exist very many places in our culture. I mean, I think karaoke is another place where, you know, people just let it out. Yeah. I mean, as a semi-trained singer, I can tell you that 99% of people who sing karaoke are terrible singers. I mean, it is... It is hard for me to, I mean, this is the opposite direction of what you're going with, Rebecca, but. You have the judgment. (laughs) But I, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'll, I love it and I'm, I'm happy about it and I do a lot of it and I, and when I'm singing like a Billy Idol song, it's not like I'm nailing every note, but, but there are some people that get up there and I'm like, have you ever heard the song before? Hmm. Do you, do you know what? A tone is. Do you know what rhythm? It like it's a little pitchy, dog. The, it's it's a not just a little. It is like I don't even know <laughs> what key. I mean, it, it's all over the board. the The rhythm is all wrong. It and I, I I just think and it's you know it's it's hard to listen, especially if you know the song, you know. But I celebrate it. I I, I would never ever say that shouldn't be the way that it is. I mean, because there's the opposite where you go to some karaoke places and like everyone is just a master at singing and like that's mm. awful. Like no one wants to have a situation like that. I'm just thinking about in other cultures where dance is just or things are just so much different. Like when we were in Cayoacan, which is Frida Kahlo's neighborhood in Mexico City, there was a band playing and everybody was just dancing children didn't matter what age you were people were just dancing and having a great time or when we were in croatia people just sang and they sang all night and they may sing the same song five times and it doesn't matter because you're together and you're making music like there's just a way particularly in america where creativity is shut down and taken away from you know we don't do it Unless you're super lucky. Well, it's commodified. It's, right. You know, yeah. it's it's a it's a capitalistic uh, offshoot rather than a human thing. You know, it's like packaging love between people, which of course the capitalists have attempted and to some extent succeeded. But yeah, it's you know, you as an art therapist run into this all the time. I, I hear this all the time from art therapists, where one of the first things that clients will say is they'll say, "Well, I'm not good at art." And, you know, art therapists say everyone is good at art and you're just you've been told that by some asshole fourth grade teacher or by society that says that, you know, only people who for some reason are just capitalistically valued are are artists. But everyone is an artist. Everyone can create things and express themselves. And just because you can't sell it in an art gallery doesn't have anything to do with the value of of the art. Um, Jessa has a question. What techniques from art therapy can we do to add to our self-care routines? Oh, well, I love this one um, where if you just get a ton of colors in front of you and just grab one that feels right to make 
a one line with your in-breath as you breathe in, and a different line with your out-breath as you breathe out, and just kind of check in with breathing and making lines. Maybe come back an hour or so later and see if your lines look different. Uh, but I think externalizing with art, a process that's just in your head, is a great way to kind of slow down and get creative. So is the idea that you just do whatever comes to mind, but mm-hmm. over time you might kind of like what you're drawing or that it's just a visual representation of your breathing or what's going on? Yeah, I mean, how do you let go of the inner critic, right? And yeah. if it's all this line is supposed to do is represent your breath, maybe it's hard to get that wrong. <laughs> no, no, this line doesn't represent my breath. You know, like if we can take out the normal constraints we have around putting marks on a page, how can we release ourselves? And the my favorite book on this subject is Pat Allen's Art is a Way of Knowing. It's not an easy read, but if you want to really get into the depths of how to get your creativity back, um, in art therapy circles, she's kind of viewed as the master of that. Or um, Linda Berry's What It Is or How to Paint or her syllabus book is full of how just to tap into creativity and let it be your friend. And for me, I think it's my best friend. I mean, it's always there for me. And the way that, like, your friend can stand you up, but I can go paint for four hours. (laughs) And I've just had a really good time. Show has another question. How might art therapy help with pre-verbal trauma? It's the best thing. All the play therapies, all the creative therapies are best (laughs) for pre-verbal trauma because that's how you process things as a kid. So making shapes and form and making sounds makes perfect sense to our young brains. Um, I actually got a dance therapy tool that's really working well in late stage COVID here. There, there are these like Lycra, they look like Lycra body bags, basically. And you get inside them and no one can see you and you can like kick and play and roll around on the floor. <laughs> And some of my adult clients are having a great time just getting into that pre-verbal state of moving and exploring and then coming out and saying what they notice about the permission and the safety that they feel now or maybe didn't feel then. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. and we get back, we have some more questions for Rebecca. What do you say? I, I Yes. All right, we're back from the break. Rebecca just realized that she spittled on herself, and she's real sad. <laughs> so bad. Uh, she's drinking a some sort of smoothie thing, and uh, about an hour ago, or a long time ago, she spilled on on her shirt, and she's now just realizing it. And she's embarrassed because a, a client probably was staring at it the whole time, wondering what kind of slob her therapist is. Um, how does that make you feel, Rebecca? I just—it's par for the course. <laughs> I mean, I have already had to purchase a second set of clothes because the first set of COVID clothes had so many food stains on it. <laughs> it's a bad 
bad. It's really bad. Yeah. I mean, well, why why are you... I mean, I'll tell you why my clothes are getting more <laughs> stains. It's because a lot of eating happens, like, while I'm slouching on the on the couch. Yeah. But, but what about you? Why is that same? Right. I mean, I'm slouching on the couch or I'm, you know, trying to do 500 things while I'm eating. And I don't even think about, like, eating being a dignified act anymore. Yeah. You know, it's just like... And I'm only eating soft foods at this point. Like, I've just, like, become this really old person in sweats that has food stains on them. Like, that's who I am now. Yeah, my dog loves to lick my chest after dinner because <laughs> it has crumbs. <laughs> All right. Along those lines, uh, listener Lindsay from Georgia asked a question. I just listened to coronavirus parenting episode and found it very helpful. Will an update be done so we can hear how Rebecca and family are doing? So that this episode, I had to actually look it up. I kind of forgot we did it, but it was almost exactly a year ago. Wow. We did an episode on Corona, just titled Coronavirus Parenting with Rebecca. That's, that's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. So what's the update, Rebecca? Well, so the biggest thing that we did to get through coronavirus, and I know every state is different, but in Seattle... The way I read, the way we read the precautions were you can hang out with, your family can hang out with five different people outside your family. And my wife and I, outside, my family, my wife and I gave those five different people to our kid. And so we had really marginal social lives and we gave our social life to him and he hosted backyard barbecues and this is my favorite story is that there was this one day I couldn't find him in the house and so eventually I texted him and I was like where are you and he was like I'm at Ikea with my friends because this is in like the middle of winter so it's open it's warm and they're wandering around Ikea with their masks on making fun of product names just like everyone does in Ikea and they're having a really good time um so that was a major thing that we did. Um, and it's been rough. There's been many, many dark days where one person is really down or really angry. Um, you know, our, luckily we have pets who seem to love us no matter what. Yeah. Uh, uh, your son is 17 and in high school and... Uh, what was that like? It's been brutal. In terms of learning, I just I so wish they would have just canceled the whole year and just had teachers as like resource leaders. Like if the kid had a project that they were interested in, the teacher could have been one more person that they checked in with. I mean, he the thing that's been intense through his eyes is to watch how much he thinks adults are idiots and have really boggled this whole thing. Yeah, um, and they've just lost so much time to the point now where if they lose something, they're not even upset. Like on Valentine's Day, he had this whole thing planned, and if you'll remember, in February we had that freak snowstorm on Valentine's Day. Yeah, and so he couldn't do what he planned, and he was just so resigned to it. Like, well, that's how life works. <laughs> Nothing happens anymore. 
nothing goes our way. Um, and we've been so lucky. I mean, we've lost people we've known to cancer in this time, but we, except for his principal's mother dying, which really impacted that whole community, um, we haven't lost anyone to COVID. Yeah. But even without that loss, I mean, it's just, it's sad and it's hard to keep going and you mostly just, you know, eat pudding in your sweatpants. And while dribble it on your face. <laughs> dribble it on it. Just and, as, a, as a side note, do you know anyone who got uh, coronavirus, who got COVID? I do. Co- how, oddly, how many people? Uh, I'd say I know about 10, but we also lived in New York and it was interesting. All of our friends who were professors who were mostly all lesbians got it right away in new york or in new york so all the people you know were in new york are in new york um and then actually i a former art therapy student right now her whole family is going through it right now right now right now which is like horrible i mean at this i mean god yeah um so we knew quite a few people who got it and then beth has an employee who got it and is pregnant and had to get hospitalized. Ooh. Um, hospitalized because of breathing problems? Yeah. So I'm sure most people know, but if you get it while you're pregnant, it can be really hard on your body. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's shown up in our lives. But in the beginning and the way it you know, statistically seems, I would have – for and, you know – you're because of your New York connection, I guess, you know, a lot more people, but I only know, I think I only know one person and I don't even really know her that well. Like she's a friend of a friend and she got it early on. I don't know. I don't think I, I mean, there's other people who could have gotten it and didn't know they had it, including myself. Right. But, but I don't think I got it because, you know, then others would have gotten it around me, but, and I've been so careful and my family's been so careful, but I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, aside from this one person and it's, and it's kind of random that I even heard that she had it because this friend of, you know, a friend of mine said, oh, by the way, this other person got it. Like if they never would have told me, I would have gotten to this point without knowing a single person that got it. And I just find that that is just so interesting it's like is is it just my circle is it that seattle rates are relatively low which of course it is it's a seattle thing i mean if all of america had done what seattle did there would have been three hundred thousand fewer deaths right can you imagine that yeah because the average american right now one in three people know someone who died of covid in the last year so in this but not way, in Seattle. Very, not I mean, Seattle. C- certainly where deaths did happen. Yeah, but you know, it started in Seattle, right? <laughs> and somehow uh, we did it right. You know, and people joke. It's like, oh, you know, we've been social distancing for decades. <laughs> but I also just think we're more science oriented in Seattle. You know, we respect science. We respect the experts, and we did what they told us to do. And we have government that respects. This, this scientist and, and respects uh, that process. And uh, we did it like other countries. You know, it's sort of weird in the United States. There's we sort of lump the United States together, but every state and every municipality is like completely different. Right. Well, yeah. And if I mean, so I don't know if there was a New York Times article specifically about this, which is why I'm shooting off statistics. Um, 
but what's very interesting is we had a Democratic governor. If you live through the AIDS crisis here or the hepatitis crisis, you know that we have a very strong, proactive, non-shame-based health departments in this state who followed the science and didn't put any shame on it. And when the governor actually flew out to some of the sites that were having trouble getting people to wear masks and like had personal conversations with them. So this is, it was very hands-on here. I mean, also in San Francisco, the rates are very low and they have a famously really strong health department. So I think it shows a lot about infrastructure like I was trying to, oh, I have to make a quick shout out. Um, Guy Young successfully defended her dissertation and, and is now a doctor. Um, and we believe that she's one of the first people in Korea to do research on gay people from a positive lens instead of a shaming lens. I was trying to describe to Guy Young that we don't have a national healthcare system right, here. Right. So she's like, why is it so bad? And I'm trying to explain. She can't even imagine a medical system that's state by state, county by county. Right. There's no government mandate of this is how you behave now. Right. And and the, just as a side note, and and everyone's experiencing, or a lot of people are or will be experiencing this, to one, know if you're qualified for the vaccine, and two, know where to go. In the United States, is so <laughs> people in the United States are like, well, yeah, that's just how it is. In other countries, there's one website probably that you go to. It's a federal government website, and it says, sign up here. Here's where you go. In the United States, literally every single location, and there are hundreds of them in Seattle alone, has its own website and its own scheduling protocol. So every hospital... they. They have, you know, we have grocery stores that have pharmacies in it that are giving out the vaccine. You have to go to that grocery store's locations website to or sign up. Yeah, to sign up for the vaccine. Uh, that is, uh, you know, there's a problem with that. Like, if now we're managing it, it's working, but it would have been so much easier if there was just a federal system that said, we have the vaccine. Here is what you do. Here is where you go. You know, and it's 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 really just a uh, it illuminates how broken our system is. You know, right? Late stage capitalism is not attractive on a lot of levels. <laughs> Late stage <laughs> capitalism. So, so my mother is eighty and lives in Florida. Florida is one of the highest elderly populations in the country and one of the lowest vaccinated rates she called me and basically said i can't get vaccinated can you help me in two minutes of research i had the bare basics here's the state sanctioned site that you need to sign up at have you signed up on it she said to me no but i knew she was going to say no so i proactively signed her up on it then most old people are used to going to the pharmacies to get their vaccination so I've heard this from many people who are helping their elderly parents, that their parents just keep calling the pharmacy, not understanding what this system looks like and not being able to access the Internet in a way that explains it to them. Right. My mother, who's 80, had to drive an hour to get her vaccine 
Yeah, my parents too. Same. Um, Even in Seattle, you know. right? And what's sad is that if she had lived in Seattle, I could have gotten her vaccinated, basically down the street from my house, four months ago. But that's because you had a connection, like you knew a thing, you well, know. You're and like, also, like our because South Seattle is the highest rate, the neighborhood is very protective of each other, and has started these pop up vaccination sites walking distance for most seniors from their home. They're also going door to door in like the Eritrean communities and other communities with Eritrean translators to vaccinate people. Like there's just, it's just fascinating. Like when you have health systems that really reflect the members and the members needs, this is what can happen. And it reminds me of the AIDS epidemic of like, when you get the community that's actually impacted creating the social services truly something different happens than when you have a massive corporate entity that's trying to make money like in florida the governor who's republican gave the contracts to these grocery stores who could care less about the community and aren't working very hard to make it accessible to folks right and i yelled enough for today no no i mean it, it i'm glad i mean we're doing good uh, especially in com- it, you know, I, on Reddit, there's all these stats coming out and non-Americans are coming. It's like, man, you Americans are the simultaneously the dumbest and the smartest. Like, you're the dumbest when it come, came to masks and social distancing and doing and politics and all this stuff. But you're also simultaneously like the strongest community on the planet when it comes to like rolling out the vaccine and getting it into people's arms and moving. So, f- I mean, I have a friend in Mexico, the drummer of my band actually. And he's saying like he, his hope is one day when, when it becomes commercially available in the United States, he's going to drive uh-huh. into the United States and get it in the U S uh-huh. because he says his government in Mexico is, is like completely in denial about the whole thing or something. I don't know uh-huh. exactly what the explanation, but, but <laughs> it's just, you know, I don't know. It's like I'm simultaneously uh, ashamed and proud, you know, of of my country in this way. You know, it's it's because uh, you know soon we're going to have everyone vaccinated, or you know, enough people vaccinated, where life will be able to return to normal theoretically. Anyway, I have another question about lockdown for you, Patron Laura from Lara from Italy. I think she actually emailed in in the very beginning when Italy shut down Uh anyway, but she says, what do you think the main goal, what what do you think the main long-term consequences of lockdown and distancing will be? I'm mostly interested in how zoom school and Uh forced distancing could affect children's experience and mental illness. What do you think, Rebecca? Uh Uh, I really hope we let go of zoom school as soon as possible. Yeah, as a professor myself, I mean, can you imagine teaching art therapy at Antioch? Because you don't teach at Antioch anymore, but can you imagine teaching Antioch students over Zoom? Well, what we've learned, what we already knew is that our our brains don't read faces on computers as human faces. Yeah. Um, you know, we can get lulled by the voice, but our nervous systems is not are not getting fed in the same way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, And so I think that, first off, I think there's a certain segment of the population that's not coming back out. Um, That 
Yeah. I And I myself might be part of that. I mean, people are like, where do you want to travel first? Where do you want to travel this summer? And I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere for a while. I am so exhausted and depleted. Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds. Like, uh, on one hand, I'm like, I got, you know, I'm just going to get an RV and I'm never going to come home for like a year and a half. And then another part of me is just like, uh, maybe I'll never travel again. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, people on Reddit on the clinical subreddits are talking about how many of them are never going to return to in-person therapy again as therapists and as clients. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, I do think that's true. I, I ha- you know, I've got a suite. <laughs> I've got two or three offices that are empty. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to fill them again. Uh, I know that I will probably have to have one day remote for the rest of my practice. Uh, I'm curious. Why? Like you want because it to people, be that way? No, people won't come in, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to fill it. Um, Did you I do mean, teletherapy before the pandemic? No. Yeah, me neither. Only so you're saying you're saying that some clients are saying, "I'm uh, once the pandemic is over, I'm not coming in." Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm curious to see shut-in rates. Yeah. After this, and if they'll go up. Yeah. Um, you know, then there's going to be the flip side. There's going to be like roaring twenties, where you know, I mean, the last pandemic was in 1818. What did the twenties look? What are the twenties known for? But like one giant party. I mean, I right. think you're going to get. And I'm really curious about my son's generation. If eventually, when they feel safe, if they're never going inside ever, or yeah. They're, yeah, they're probably only going to want to experience things in person. Well, it's interesting because you know, as we're talking about it, it's like it could go uh, either direction. Wait, I could see it going either. I could see people like the Roaring Twenties, and we're literally going into the Twenties again. And no one ever wants to go inside ever again. And no one wants to look at a computer. No one wants to look at Zoom. And we're going to, just going to be constantly hugging and spitting in each other's faces. <laughs> Blowing up birthday candles for the, every yeah. day. Yeah, just just every day. Um, or you could see another world where people, half the population never sits outside the house ever again. They mm-hmm. work from home. They socialize from home. They go to classes from home, uh, and you could you could see both, and maybe it'll be a mixture. Maybe it'll you know I just I, I, and I think, will they call them the freezies? Like they'll be the zoomies who stayed inside. Oh, the zoomies, and then the outies who went out again. But also, there's like a whole other aspect to this in our business, which is what will insurance pay for? Currently, right, people are getting. Non-co-paid, so for them it's free, as much mental health treatment as they want over Zoom. With insurance companies, are they going to switch that and no longer pay for Zoom sessions? And does that mean there's going to be this kind of two-class system where if you can afford to not use insurance, you can stay on Zoom, and for clinicians as well. Um, you know, I'm sure certain homebound illnesses, people or rural people, this has been a boom for them to be able to get therapy. But I think there's going to be an interesting two-tiered system where some people have to come in. And I, other- I think this, I don't know, this is just me uh, for the first time speculating, but I think insurance companies will pay, they'll just pay less. Mm-hmm. Um, because when they can kind of save money that way, 
uh, and two, I think they would be worried about being sued for denying services to someone who, you know, for one reason or another, because I've always wondered about that, about like, okay, someone has agoraphobia and they can't go to, they can't step outside the house to go to therapy. You're telling me that you're going to force a patient to leave the house, which is a total catch 22 for that person. That doesn't make any sense. It's not. It's not clinically possible. And, and we are talking of, about insurance companies here. <laughs> I know, but but they react. You know, they they react to how you know p- people feel. You know, and if enough people feel something, and I think that given the tide change with all of this, I, I suspect that you know, in the near future, anyway, that this will. Uh, that but but they'll charge less because they'll say that it. Uh, requires less resources on behalf of the mental health person, which you could argue is actually true. And, and then they're like, then it's a win-win, <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. but kind of a lose for the therapist on some level. So like something that I think of and enjoy are your live events that come through this show. Can you see yourself doing those events again? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have fantasies. Uh, it's actually part of the... the um, RV was just to go city to city and just say like, I'm in Denver, you know, any fans, let's, let's meet up at the park. Um, But then I think, I mean, I guess for me, I just don't know what I'm going to have a total extravaganza of inoculation partying and restaurants and movie theaters, you know, and I'm just going to go to the movies and matinee. Yeah. 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 Uh, and hugging my parents, you know, and, and playing with my nieces and nephews on, with Legos and stuff. Like I have all these plans. I have two thoughts. So one, one is the thing me and my wife talk about the most is getting a giant soaker tub and just like soaking in a bathroom and feeling content. So that way I know I'm getting old. We also have talked a lot about different concerts that we've been to and like, who would we want to see next? And are you an XX fan, Jamie XX? They started when they were 16. No. Okay. They're amazing. They sound like if New Order or Depeche Mode just got updated. And it was the last show that we went to where we saw a lot of our friends our age. Oh, are you talking about the band XX? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen them live. I saw them at the, what did I see them downtown? You saw them at the side to the stadium and i was there too and it had those giant rotating mirrors and it was fantastic and it was on a tuesday and i was dead for the next week and a half but it was worth it because they were so magical and a a friend that was even older than us was in the front row um so like you know will i rally for those kind of magical times um what I'll say, you know, I looked at actually, I looked at some research because I was curious. And the the larger question, larger answer I'll say is, events like this in psychology are typically studied for decades after. So we probably won't really know what's happening right now, psychologically, mental health wise, until uh, studies come out in five years and there's meta studies on the studies. But just some initial research that's coming out, Viner et al. 2020, they found that closing the schools contributed to 2 to 4% additional prevention of deaths due to COVID-19, which is quite less than using other methods of social distancing. So in other words, you know, they were saying, we got to close the schools because that will uh, stop the spread of the virus. But what they found comparing different communities was that it uh, didn't 
lower the death rate by as much as they were hoping. Now, 2 to 4% is still a lot of people that didn't die, but it wasn't – and it's, the reason for this study was we have to make a, a judgment call on the effects on children and to close the schools will cause problems. And, of course, studies will come out to demonstrate what those problems were. And you were talking about it earlier with your son. Um, and we have to match that up with, you know, what gain do we get? And they're saying, you know, 2 to 4% l- uh, lower uh, deaths due to it. You know, is that worth it? Is it not worth it? I, I don't really answer that question. Um, Pandy et al. 2020 found that there was a 9% or sorry, 9 times, so 900% increase in the prevalence of depression and anxiety during lockdown. So a lot more depression and anxiety during lockdown, which makes total sense, right? Well, and also just the t- statistics coming out of Garfield, their their individual class failure rate, the amount of kids that have failed a single class, is up 600%. Right. Yeah. So that's devastating on kids' self-esteem and family systems and, yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's a... Do, do they hold him to it? Do they do they actually? I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, it's very complicated. They said that they're going to, but once you get numbers like that, how can you possibly? Yeah, I mean, do that. Yeah, that's not fair, really. Uh, which is, you know, and that's one of those things that shows like the system's broken. It's not the kids' fault. It's yeah. Not the, yeah. It's the adults' fault <laughs> for making them go to school in the middle of well, a crazy the adults' pandemic. fault for not for not having a public health system. <laughs> That shut down the virus in the first few weeks of this whole stupid goddamn thing. Oh, God. It's been such a long year. So I also, I'm curious to see. So first off, what we know about kids and trauma is that they're going to all gather up together and love each other and roll around and create new songs about it and new TikTok dances. And they're going to probably be fine. A certain percentage, 10%. Will probably not be fine, but the vast majority, they're going to get back together and be just fine. I do think that my son's generation will hold proms from now on as just like that thing that they missed, those big markers that they missed. They'll keep trying to find ways. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it will really, I don't know what you say, like fetishize yes. those those events that they just took for granted. Right. Yeah, the college tour, the prom, the first job. Truth or dare. Right. <laughs> Did you play truth or dare when you Spoties. were a kid? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that off air. JoJo's. Yeah, yeah. So people email in or comment below. So in in Washington, in Seattle, we we have this. We have some words that I think are regional and that go back you know, decades where one is the word spody, which was this thing that you would drink in high school. And what they would do is they would put all this fruit in a, in a bucket or in a giant cooler. And then you would fill it with just any kind of alcohol, you know, gin and vodka and rum. And, and, and it was, it was just pure alcohol, but with pieces of fruit in it. And the idea was, is that it kind of made it like fruity alcohol punch and then you could also eat the fruit and the fruit would uh taste like fruit but it would get you really hammered you know what i mean it's so horrible. It's so yeah and horrible. i think in other parts of the country they call it something different i've heard of but anyway in seattle we call it spody the other word that was local i'm pretty sure is the word jojo which was convenience store 
uh, potato wedges. So they're like they're like giant uh, French fries that are in wedge shape, and they had spices on them and you would find them at convenience stores and we called them jojo potatoes these are like sitting under a hot light for yeah weeks yeah and they're making my mouth water because they were <laughs> they were things that you would eat because it was really cheap or you were stoned or something and and Next jojo potatoes. hot dog that's just been rotating for like <laughs> for yeah but like, you know it jojo potatoes were reached for much more frequently oh, yeah. than that stupid hot dog. I right? mean, pure grease, pure starch and grease. Well, somehow it just seems less like it's going to kill you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's a potato. Um, so we had we had Spody and we had Jojo potato. So, uh, and there were a few other words too that I think were local. Oh, a, a real local word that we had in Issaquah was the word red. So we would say, and I think Stacy grew up in Bellevue, which is next to Issaquah, and I think she heard it too, where when you got angry, you'd say, you're so red. Mm. Like, oh, don't be red. You know, don't, don't mm. be angry. Like, don't get red in the face or something. Mm-hmm. Well, then, and then we have all these regional words. So the mountain is out, which means that you can see Mount Rainier. Right. UW is what we call the University of Washington. Hey, yeah. And, and have you ever heard someone from out of, you know, state, they'll, they'll say, They'll they'll pronounce they'll put the accent on the wrong letter and oh. they'll go they'll go U dub. Oh, what is that word? I don't yeah. even know. What yeah, that it's U dub. It's not U dub, right? And then the Ave is the street. It's next. not even an avenue. It's not no. even. Yeah, we we have the it's street. Fifteenth Street or something. It, no, it's fifteenth. It's fifteenth way. It? Oh. Or no, it's University Way. It's, it's University, University Way. way. Yeah, we yeah. Call it the Ave. Yeah, we call it the Ave. Why do we call it the Ave? It's I don't not know. even an Ave. Yeah. Um. Then. What are other things? And then there's we things We don't call that you can it the five. We call it I-5. No, five. I-5. Yeah. Right. And then there's things that you can say to have status. Like ch- Chubby and Tubby was the catch-all everything store. Yeah. Where you could get basketball shoes and a hammer. Yeah. And some and an fishing Xbox line. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, what, what other... So, oh, we have many words for rain. You know, there's... there's Spittle. There's, there's misting, there's sprinkling, there's, you know, like heavy, you know, it's all the different kind of kind of rain well, we have. And also you can tell a local here that expects it to be warm at noon, which is not what happens here. The warmest part of the day is 4 p.m., ah. which is very confusing if you haven't been here a while and you're like, it's noon and it's freezing. And you're like, yeah, wait till 4 yeah. and then it'll be 80. Right, right. So that's <laughs> yeah. another because it takes a while for the sun to warm the clouds, which warm the earth, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. What other kind of... I was thinking what other kind of local... Well, and then there's the lake, which is Lake Washington, which is the size of some oceans. Like, it's huge. Yeah. And having... But the thing about the lake is you have to shower after you get out of the lake because of the amount of bacteria. From all the all the runoff from the septic systems from the And homes. all the people... Yeah. But also, there's a ton of dead bodies in that lake. This is one thing I've learned, is that... I think I that, heard that a long time ago. Oh, yeah. So people people die on that lake every year. And I now live on a part of it where multiple people die. And you'll yeah, you live, you live just a couple blocks away or a half right. block away or something. So people will ask, like, do I need a life jacket? And I'm like, do you want to die? Do you want to be on the bottom of that lake? <laughs> like, so wait, how many people like, die? Oh, uh, between three and ten people a year die, and just on our part of the lake. Just on your by Seward Park. Yeah, last 
summer, two people died within a week of each other. Is it like just those typical like drunken accidents? And people don't know. I mean, this is runoff from the mountain. This is glacial runoff. So in the summer, the first three to five feet are warm. But underneath that, it's 30 degrees. Like really, you, if, yeah, hmm. put on your life jacket if you're going on the lake. So people could just be swimming and that, and then they, they freeze a, up. They hit a cold patch and they just plummet. But mostly, what happens is you're drunk. You're sitting on the boat. Right. The wake comes. You get knocked off. You don't have a life jacket on, and you sink. Yeah. And then the helicopters come out, and we know, like, oh, someone died. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. We're people like the lake. It's so beautiful, and now we say there's tons of dead bodies out there. <laughs> well, you're also like in that in that little cove area where so many boats like to just anchor, right? Yeah, and party and play loud music and yeah, which is know. also the. I don't think many cities have speedboat races the way that we do, right? And I've heard from my wife that. Before there was a long time that Seattle didn't really have sports teams, and the big event that yeah. happened every year was Seafair. Oh yeah, and you would listen to the races on oh, your tire yeah. swing from your AM radio. Oh yeah, yeah. The the uh, hydroplane races were were our thing. You know, it was you know we didn't have we had semi pro hockey. We didn't have football until seventy seven. We had the Mariners. We did well. I guess we had the Sonics in the early seventies. Um, but yeah, it was a big deal. Um, but the, the joke about it is that it's an event that everyone part. It's sort of like, I'm guessing it's, it's sort of like the water version of NASCAR where everyone shows up for various different reasons (laughs) and no one watches. Yeah. Cause it's not very interesting. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some races where you're like, you, you want, you know, the Budweiser. Like, who was the big guy? Uh, God, I can't remember the, the most famous guy in the 70s that was the Budweiser. Mario Andretti? No, no. You know, he was a he was a hydroplane race oh, uh, I don't uh, even know. driver. And, God, what was his name? Anyway, um, yeah, I, I never thought about it. It's sort of like NASCAR of the water. and Because yes. um, there's races all day long. And, lots of drinking. Yeah, lots of drinking, and everyone brings their boats, and there's this huge log, log uh, sort of barrier that everyone just. And what happened? I've, have you ever been on the log uh, before? No, I would so, not do well because so, you're trapped with all these drunk people. Yeah. On so the water. what? You, so what happens is, I think you can reserve a spot on the log. I think you actually need a license, but behind, you know, so you have all these. You know, big yachts, small little boats, they're all on this log, and and you can watch the races right from there. No one's watching, by the way. And then other boats, you know, thousands and thousands of boats, little ones, big ones, will just tie off on the boats that are tying off on the log. And and that's just like honor system. And by the end of the, you know, midday, it's like a flotilla of thousands of boats that are just tied together together. Like like it's the movie Waterworld or something, <laughs> and it's With much more alcohol. Yeah, and it's yeah, and so so everyone's super drunk. Mm. There's no water to drink, right? Because and you can't go to the bathroom, right? So <laughs> you know you can imagine what happens in that scenario, right? Mm. Mm. And you're in the bla- usually it's you're in the blazing sun, so everyone's getting 
heat stroke and there's no water and there's too much and there's booze. gas fumes too yeah <laughs> and uh yeah it's um you know it's quite a quite a thing in, in seattle well and also uh so lots of spody on that on yeah that lots of spody so also COVID has been a trip in this part of town we've lost so many super old businesses so borcini's Went out of business? It did. No. Yes. I used to live, or you and I used to live. Yes. Uh, just blocks from there. That is a, that was an institution. We had, so for people who don't know, there was this part of town that they call it the Italian Gulch, I think. Garlic Gulch. Garlic Gulch. And it was this little Italy and uh, just south of downtown, southeast, southwest, southeast of downtown. And, and there was this, uh, store that was still there that was iconic and it they sold everything there you know all the you know olive oil they had huge cakes for some reason they had birthday cakes yeah wedding cakes yeah that, that's why actually they had to close is that they no one ordered birthday cakes uh, i used to walk down there and get what would i get i think i got focaccia oh yes and, and or they, 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 pizza and stuff that they would spell, sell by the slice i can't remember but that is a bummer. I mean, that's a Seattle institution right there. That's sad. Well, and also, oh boy, Oberto's, which I mentioned because of the speedboats, they always had a boat in the race. Yeah. And on his 100th birthday, I think they just won. They're moving out of that famous building oh, as no. well. They're not closing, but I think they're moving. That sucks, too. Yeah, that's in the same area. And my connection to that store. Now, you know, if anyone's listening at this point, it's just They like, don't even care. This is yeah, just us. I'm like, sorry, but... We're having but, a great time. Yeah. This is about our mental health and yeah. our needs. Yeah, so screw you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Obey Roberto, my dad, would stop by there every now and then, and he would buy a bag of the ends of oh. pepperoni sticks. So <laughs> it, So, you know, they make pepperoni sticks. They have to cut off the ends to make mm-hmm. it all uniform. And they would sell them by the bulk in these in these big bags, and my dad would bring them home, and and I would eat them like candy. I would just I would just sit in front of the TV, just just eating pepperoni stick ends over, and I had sort of a system of how I would eat them too. And yeah, I just I just love that. I did, I'm just bummed that that's leaving as well. I mean, that part of town isn't doing very well anyway, and so for those businesses to leave, that's no good. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's all becoming housing, which is fascinating to Cause watch. Because of, of the, the, the train there. Because right. of the light rail, right. right. Yeah, so it's it's a... And then all... I mean, and then there's these other sections, like there are these little Vietnams that fly the South Vietnam flag, which doesn't even exist anymore in South Vietnam. Um, and all of those... There's all these car businesses that I think are about to lose their spot and all become housing so seattle as well as all over the country i mean it'll be fascinating i think there'll probably be these covid maps of like here's what this neighborhood looked like before covid and you know here's who's here now we lost our toy store in columbia city which is huge for me i've been in every store there so i must have is was it really small was it a it, really was, small? it had a hair cutting place it was right next to um now we're really losing listeners <laughs> <laughs> Next to Medusa, the Italian. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I plan on I plan on tipping wildly because <laughs> I haven't eaten out at all in the past year and or much, and so I plan on 
supporting our restaurant tours with is that what is that a proper word? Yes. It's with um with thirty percent tips or something. I don't know what my policy is going to be, but money's going to fly. Yeah, well, because I you know I've saved a lot of money because I used to eat out a lot, right? So I feel like I need to make up for it, and, and, and I, I and I genuinely will be happy to those who manage to survive, right? And I just want to represent the other end of the spectrum, which is that I did not save a lot of money because I compulsively shopped. It appears, now that I sort through what I bought, it appears I bought a tank top at least once a week, imagining. <laughs> what kind of tank top? Like a work, like a like a light blue linen thing that I would wear in the summer. I mean, there was also having to replace all the sweatshirts that had food on them. <laughs> but for all of you who just compulsively shopped your way through the last year, I just want to say that you're not alone. <laughs> and that, you know, pass on what you don't need. Yeah, I did a um, fair amount of that too. Like I did a lot of um, nostalgia buying. Like mm. I bought a Star Trek Enterprise model, a Battlestar Galactica Viper model. I bought lots of Lego. You know, I posted pictures of various different Legos that I, you know, would buy. And so, yeah, I've I did a fair amount of that too. Lots of. Did you do any nostalgia buying? <sighs> I must feel nostalgic about tank tops. I don't know. Um, I mostly went nuts for outdoor lighting, um, just because we were like outside so much. Like I think we now own twenty very small, you know, LED options for lighting outdoors. What do you mean, like what kind of light? Just like the like kinds a, you, you stake into like the a, ground, like a camping. Odd oh. kind of thing. They look like hockey pucks, but like they expand in all different ways. Oh. Um, there was a lot of kind of a lot of throw pillows were purchased. A lot of outdoor <laughs> blankets were purchased, <laughs> including one thing that my wife calls uh, my Teletubby outfit, which is basically <laughs> a slanket. It's a slanket. A, yeah, a sleeping bag. With yeah. The legs cut out. Yeah. And I now garden in. That's amazing. For Wait, you garden in it? Yeah, because you get wet and dirty when you garden in the Northwest because you have to garden in the rain. But I can garden in my waterproof. Slank it. <laughs> plushy lined hooded. It has a gigantic pocket in the front where I can fit like my phone and some you must look tools. like You must look like some kind of like... A post-apocalyptic monster in your backyard. I mean, I'm just I picturing this this I'll giant tarp that's over your head, and you have tools, and you're like rummaging around in the bushes or something. If we can prove that any fans are still listening to the podcast at this point, I will send a picture of me in this outfit because okay. it is the most Northwest thing you have ever seen. I'll post it. I'll post it. All right. One final question. All right, just and to then kinda, I gotta go. Yeah. Gotta, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Patron Sam says, she says, I heard you talk about trauma surrounding Korean families. Do you have any experience or thoughts on generational trauma for Eastern Europeans? Oh, yeah. I have a few in my life, and they seem to be very similar in their emotional defenses and way of relating. What do you think? Yeah, it's 100% true. Um, I mean, your I ancestors am, come yes, from that part of the I world. am uh, Ukrainian and Polish. Uh, there's either, you know, there's a tremendous amount of shutdown uh, in Slavic languages, vod is water. Vodka is like water extended. Like the primary method to tolerate was drinking. So you get a lot of really shut down people who have had 
pogroms and communism and you know invasions from the left from the right you right. know in world war Two, what percentage didn't russia lose 50 million citizens or something like, yeah it was millions upon millions yeah yeah and half of that was uh not having food in moscow right um you know then there is like what the romanian government did to children by not allowing abortions or birth control and thousands upon thousands of children going into these mass orphanages and never being touched um so yeah i i it is it is rampant the intergenerational shame and and that wealth is a the most important thing. Yeah. And Poland in particular, I know a lot about because I've had a lot of supervisees and clients from that region. And the just, you know, it goes back hundreds of years, but just looking at World War II, you had the invasion of the Nazis, which was not pleasant. And then you had the invasion of the Soviets, which was not pleasant. And then you had, you know, both groups of people just, crapping all over the Polish individuals. And then they come to the States and they're discriminated here. I mean, you know, we grew up with all the Polak jokes. And you, when you do that to a group of people, you stress out a, a group of people when they're in their 20s, for example. You know, they're stressed out their whole life. But they're in their 20s. They're trying to get married. They're trying to have kids. They're being oppressed financially. They're being oppressed physically. They might be being murdered occasionally, you know, genocide. They're refugees. They're running around. They're not going to have a capacity to parent for their children very well. You know, when you're stressed out, I mean, think about everyone listening out there who are parents on a good day, parenting suffers. Well, imagine if you're trying to just survive, you're just trying to get like a meal in, into your children's mouths. You're not going to have the most, um, I don't know, uh, patient way of approaching sort sort of thing. And so, uh, those kids grow up with attachment injuries and then those kids pass on those attachment injuries to their children and so on and so on. And it just goes on and on. And so, uh, yeah, it's a thing. And it, it, it's uh, present in a lot of different population groups. And then we look at those populations and say, what's wrong with that population? Right. They, you know, and, and then they get further discriminated against. But the lack of understanding of generational trauma is the problem there. All right, Rebecca, that does it for that episode. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Why should people take care of themselves? Because Rebecca? you need to eat more JoJo's. There's, <laughs> there's, those there's JoJo's so aren't going to eat themselves. I mean, take care of yourself. Of JoJo's. <laughs> hey, next time, why don't we podcast in person? Yeah, let's do it. All right, I'm ready. We'll hug and spit in each other's faces. Oh, I'm going to blow out some birthday candles in your face. <laughs> that sounded really aggressive. <laughs> <laughs>